Section 1 of The Red and the Black, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Malone. The Red and the Black, Volume 2 by Stendhal. Translated by Horace B. Samuel. The Pleasures of the Country. O oh, Rus, quando ego te aspiciam, Horace. You've no doubt come to wait for the Paris mail, monsieur, said the host of an inn where he had stopped to breakfast. Today or tomorrow it matters little, said Julien. The mail arrived while he was still posing as indifferent. There were two free places. Why, it's you, my poor Falcoz, said the traveller who was coming from the Geneva side to the one who was getting in at the same time as Julien. I thought you were settled in the outskirts of Lyon, said Falcoz, in a delicious valley near the Rhone. Nicely settled. I'm running away. What? You are running away? You Saint-Giraud! Have you, who look so virtuous, committed some crime said falcoz with a smile on my faith it comes to the same thing i'm running away from the abominable life which one leads in the provinces i like the freshness of the woods and the country tranquillity as you know you have often accused me of being romantic i don't want to hear politics talked as long as i live and politics are hounding me out but what party do you belong to? To none, and that's what ruins me. That's all there is to be said about my political life. I like music and painting. A good book is an event for me. I'm going to be forty-four. How much longer have I got to live? Fifteen, twenty, thirty years at the outside? Well, I want the ministers in thirty years' time to be a little cleverer than those of today, but quite as honest. The history of England serves as a mirror for our own future. There will always be a king who will try to increase his prerogative. The ambition of becoming a deputy, the fame of Birabeau, and the hundreds of thousand francs which he won for himself, will always prevent the rich people in the province from going to sleep. They will call that being liberal and loving the people. The desire of becoming a peer or a gentleman of the chamber will always win over the ultras. On the ship of state, everyone is anxious to take over the steering because it is well paid. Will there be never a poor little place for the simple passenger? Is it the last elections which are forcing you out of the province? My misfortune goes further back. Four years ago I was forty and possessed five hundred thousand francs. I'm four years older today and probably fifty thousand francs to the bad, as I shall lose that sum on the sale of my chateau of Montfleury in a superb position near the Rhone. At Paris I was tired of that perpetual comedy which is rendered obligatory by what you call nineteenth-century civilization. 
I thirsted for good nature and simplicity. I bought an estate in the mountains near the Rhine. There is no more beautiful place under the heavens. The village clergyman and the gentry of the locality pay me court for six months. I invite them to dinner. I have left Paris, I tell them, so as to avoid talking politics or hearing politics talked for the rest of my life. As you know, I do not subscribe to any paper. The less letters the postman brought me, the happier I was. That did not suit the vicar's book. I was soon the victim of a thousand unreasonable requests, annoyances, etc. I wished to give two or three hundred francs a year to the poor. I was asked to give it to the Paris associations, that of St. Joseph, that of the Virgin, etc. I refused. I was then insulted in a hundred ways. I was foolish enough to be upset by it. I could not go out in the morning to enjoy the beauty of our mountain without finding some annoyance which distracted me from my reveries and recalled unpleasantly both men and their wickedness. On the rogation processions, for instance, whose chanting I enjoy, it is probably a Greek melody, they will not bless my fields because, says the clergyman, they belong to an infidel. A cow dies belonging to a devout old peasant woman. She says the reason is the neighborhood of a pond which belongs to my infidel self, a philosopher coming from Paris. And eight days afterwards I find my fish in agonies, poisoned by lime. Intrigue in all its forms envelops me. The justice of the peace, who is an honest man, but frightened of losing his place, always decides against me. The peace of the country proved a hell for me. Once they saw that I was abandoned by the vicar, the head of the village congregation, and that I was not supported by the retired captain who was the head of the liberals, they all fell upon me, down to the mason whom I had supported for a year, down to the very wheelwright who wanted to cheat me with impunity over the repairing of my ploughs. In order to find some support, and to win at any rate some of my lawsuits, I became a liberal. But, as you say, those damned elections come along. They asked for my vote. For an unknown man? Not at all. For a man whom I knew only too well. I refused. It was terribly imprudent. From that moment I had the Liberals on my hands as well, and my position became intolerable. I believe that if the vicar had got it into his head to accuse me of assassinating my servant, there would be twenty witnesses of the two parties who would swear that they had seen me committing the crime. You mean to say you want to live in the country without pandering to the passions of your neighbors, without even listening to their gossip? What a mistake. It is rectified at last. Montfleury is for sale. I will lose fifty thousand francs if necessary, but I am overjoyed I am leaving that hell of hypocrisy and annoyance. I'm going to look for solitude and rustic peace in the only place where those things are to be found in France, 
on a fourth story looking on to the Champs-Élysées. And moreover, I'm actually deliberating if I shall not commence my political career by giving consecrated bread to the parish in the Rule Quartier. All this would not have happened under Bonaparte, said Falcoz, with eyes shining with rage and sorrow. Very good, but why didn't your Bonaparte manage to keep his position? Everything which I suffer today is his work. At this point, Julien's attention was redoubled. He had realized from the first word that the Bonapartiste Falcoz was the old boyhood friend of Monsieur de Reynal, who had been repudiated by him in 1816, and that the philosopher Saint-Giraud must be the brother of that chief of the prefecture of, who managed to get the houses of the municipality knocked down to him at a cheap price. And all this is the work of your Bonaparte, an honest man, aged forty, and possessed of five hundred thousand francs, however inoffensive he is, cannot settle in the province and find peace there. Those priests and nobles of his will turn him out. Oh, don't talk evil of him, exclaimed Falcoz. France was never so high in the esteem of the nations as during the thirteen years of his reign. Then every single act was great. Your emperor, devil take him, replied the man of forty-four, was only great on his battlefields and when he reorganized the finances about 1802. What is the meaning of all his conduct since then? What with his chamberlains, his pomp, and his receptions in the Tuileries, he has simply provided a new edition of all the monarchical tomfoolery. It was a revised edition and might possibly have lasted for a century or two. The nobles and the priests wished to go back to the old one, but they did not have the iron hand necessary to impose it on the public. Yes, that's just how an old printer would talk. Who has turned me out of my estate? continued the printer angrily. The priests, whom Napoleon called back by his concordat, instead of treating them like the state treats doctors, barristers and astronomers, simply seeing in them ordinary citizens and not bothering about the particular calling by which they are trying to earn their livelihood. Should we be saddled with these insolent gentlemen today if your Bonaparte had not created barons and counts? No, they were out of fashion. Next to the priests, it's the little country nobility who have annoyed me the most and compelled me to become a liberal. The conversation was endless. The theme will occupy France for another half-century. As Saint-Giraud kept always repeating that it was impossible to live in the provinces, Julien timidly suggested the case of Monsieur de Reynal. Zounds, young man, you're a nice one, exclaimed Falcoz. He turned spider so as not to be fly, and a terrible spider into the bargain. But I see that he is beaten by that man Valneau. Do you know that scoundrel? He's the villain of the piece. 
What will your Monsieur de Reynal say if he sees himself turned out one of those fine days and Valnaud put in his place? He will be left to brood over his crimes, said Saint-Giraud. Do you know Verrières, young man? Well, Bonaparte, heaven confound him, Bonaparte and his monarchical tomfoolery rendered possible the reign of the Reynal and the Chelon, which brought about the reign of the Valnaud and the Maslon. This conversation, with its gloomy politics, astonished Julien and distracted him from his delicious reveries. He appreciated but little the first sight of Paris as perceived in the distance. The castles in the air he had built about his future had to struggle with the still present memory of the twenty-four hours that he had just passed in Verrières. He vowed that he would never abandon his mistress's children, and that he would leave everything in order to protect them if the impertinence of the priests brought about a republic and the persecution of the nobles. What would have happened on the night of his arrival in Verrières if, at the moment when he had leant his ladder against the casement of Madame de Reynal's bedroom, he had found that room occupied by a stranger or by Monsieur de Reynal? But how delicious, too, had been those first two hours when his sweetheart had been sincerely anxious to send him away and he had pleaded his cause, sitting down by her in the darkness. A soul like Julien's is haunted by such memories for a lifetime. The rest of the interview was already becoming merged in the first period of their love, fourteen months previous. Julien was awakened from his deep meditation by the stopping of the coach. They had just entered the courtyard of the post in the Rue Rousseau. I want to go to La Malmaison, he said to a cabriolet which approached. At this time, monsieur, what for? What's that got to do with you? Get on. Every real passion only thinks about itself. That is why, in my view, passions are ridiculous at Paris where one's neighbor always insists on one's considering him a good deal. I shall refrain from recounting Julien's ecstasy at La Malmaison. He wept. What? In spite of those wretched white walls, built this very year, which cut the path up into bits? Yes, monsieur, for Julien, as for posterity, there was nothing to choose between Arcole, saint Helena and La Malmaison. In the evening, Julien hesitated a great deal before going to the theatre. He had strange ideas about that place of perdition. A deep distrust prevented him from admiring actual Paris. He was only affected by the monuments left behind by his hero. So here I am, in the center of intrigue and hypocrisy. Here reign the protectors of the Abbe de Frilaire. On the evening of the third day, his curiosity got the better of his plan of seeing everything before presenting himself to the Abbe Pirard. 
the abbe explained to him coldly the kind of life which he was to expect at monsieur de la mole's if you do not prove useful to him at the end of some months you will go back to the seminary but not in disgrace you will live in the house of the marquis who is one of the greatest seigneurs of france you will wear black but like a man who is in mourning and not like an ecclesiastic i insist on your following your theological studies three days a week in a seminary where i will introduce you every day at twelve o'clock you will establish yourself in the marquise's library he counts on making use of you and drafting letters concerning his lawsuits and other matters the marquis will scribble on the margin of each letter he gets the kind of answer which is required i have assured him that at the end of three months you will be so competent to draft the answers that out of every dozen you hand to the marquis for signature he will be able to sign eight or nine in the evening at eight o'clock you will tidy up his bureau and at ten you will be free it may be continued the abbe pirard that some old lady or some smooth-voiced man will hint at immense advantages or will crudely offer you gold to show him the letters which the marquis has received ah monsieur exclaimed julien blushing it is singular said the abbe with a bitter smile that poor as you are, and after a year at a seminary, you still have any of this virtuous indignation left. You must have been very blind. Can it be that blood will tell, muttered the abbe, in a whisper, as though speaking to himself? The singular thing is, he added, looking at Julien, that the Marquis knows you. I don't know how. He will give you a salary of a hundred louis to commence with. He is a man who only acts by his whim. This is his weakness. He will quarrel with you about the most childish matters. If he is satisfied, your wages may rise in consequence up to eight thousand francs. But you realize, went on the abbe, sourly, that he is not giving you all this money simply on account of your personal charm. The thing is to prove yourself useful. If I were in your place, I would talk very little, and I would never talk about what I know nothing about. Oh, yes, said the abbe. I have made some inquiries for you. I was forgetting Monsieur de la Mole's family. He has two children, a daughter and a son of eighteen, eminently elegant the kind of madman who never knows today what he will do tomorrow. He has spirit and valor. He has been through the Spanish War. The Marquis hopes, I don't know why, that you will become a friend of this young Count Norbert. I told him that you were a great classic, and possibly he reckons on your teaching his son some ready-made phrases about Cicero and Virgil. If I were you, I should never allow that handsome young man to make fun of me, and before I accepted his advances, which you will find perfectly polite but a little ironical, I would make him repeat them more than once. I will not hide from you the fact that the young Count de la Mole is bound to despise you at first, 
because you are nothing more than a little bourgeois. His grandfather belonged to the court, and had the honor of having his head cut off in the Place de Grève on the 26th April, 1574, on account of a political intrigue. As for you, you are the son of a carpenter of Verrières, and what is more, in receipt of his father's wages. Ponder well over these differences, and look up the family history in Moreri. All the flatterers who dine at their home make from time to time what they call delicate allusions to it. Be careful of how you answer the pleasantries of Monsieur le Count de la Mole, chief of a squadron of Hussars and a future peer of France, and don't come and complain to me later on. It seems to me, said Julien, blushing violently, that I ought not even to answer a man who despises me. You have no idea of his contempt. It will only manifest itself by inflated compliments. If you were a fool, you might be taken in by it. If you want to make your fortune, you ought to let yourself be taken in by it. Shall I be looked upon as ungrateful, said Julien, if I return to my little cell number 108, when I find that all this no longer suits me. All the toadies of the house will no doubt calumniate you, said the abbe, but I myself will come to the rescue. Ad sum qui feci. I will say that I am responsible for that resolution. Julien was overwhelmed by the bitter and almost vindictive tone which he noticed in Monsieur Pirard. That tone completely infected his last answer. The fact is that the abbe had a conscientious scruple about loving Julien, and it was with a kind of religious fear that he took so direct a part in another's life. You will also see, he added with the same bad grace, as though accomplishing a painful duty, you will also see Madame the Marquise de la Mole, she is a big blonde woman, about forty, devout, perfectly polite, and even more insignificant. She is the daughter of the old Duc de Chaulnes, so well known for his aristocratic prejudices. This great lady is a kind of synopsis in high relief of all the fundamental characteristics of women of her rank. She does not conceal for her own part that the possession of ancestors who went through the Crusades is the sole advantage which she respects. Money only comes a long way afterwards. Does that astonish you? We are no longer in the provinces, my friend. You will see many great lords in her salon talk about our princes in a tone of singular flippancy. As for Madame de la Mole, she lowers her voice out of respect every time she mentions the name of a prince, and above all, the names of a princess. I would not advise you to say in her hearing that Philip II or Henri VII were monsters. They were kings, a fact which gives them indisputable rights to the respect of creatures without birth like you and me. Nevertheless, added Monsieur Pirard, we are priests, for she will take you for one. 
that being our capacity, she considers us as spiritual valet necessary for her salvation. Monsieur, said Julien, I do not think I shall be long at Paris. Good, but remember that no man of our class can make his fortune except through the great lords. With that indefinable element in your character at any rate, I think it is you will be persecuted if you do not make your fortune. There is no middle course for you. Make no mistake about it. People see that they do not give you pleasure when they speak to you. In a social country like this, you are condemned to unhappiness if you do not succeed in winning respect. What would have become of you at Besançon without this whim of the Marquis de la Mole? One day you will realize the extraordinary extent of what he has done for you, and if you are not a monster you will be eternally grateful to him and his family. How many poor abbé more learned than you have lived at years at Paris on the fifteen sous they got for their mass and their ten sous they got for their dissertations in the Sorbonne? Remember what I told you last winter about the first years of that bad man, Cardinal Dubois. Are you proud enough by chance to think yourself more talented than he was? Take, for instance, a quiet and average man like myself. I reckon on dying in my seminary. I was childish enough to get attached to it. Well, I was on the point of being turned out when I handed in my resignation. You know what my fortune consisted of? I had five hundred and twenty francs capital, neither more nor less, not a friend, scarcely two or three acquaintances. Monsieur de la Mole, whom I had never seen, extricated me from that quandary. He only had to say the word, and I was given a living where the parishioners are well-to-do people above all crude vices, and where the income puts me to shame, it is so disproportionate to my work. I refrained from talking to you all this time simply to enable you to find your level a bit. One word more. I had the misfortune to be irritable. It is possible that you and I will cease to be on speaking terms. If the heirs of the Marquise, or the spiteful pleasantries of her son, make the house absolutely intolerable for you, I advise you to finish your studies in some seminary thirty leagues from Paris, and rather north than south. There's more civilization in the north, and, he added, lowering his voice, I must admit that the nearness of the Paris papers puts fear into our petty tyrants. If we continue to find pleasure in each other's society, and if the Marquise's house does not suit you, I will offer you the post of my curate, and will go equal shares with you in what I get from the living. I owe you that, and even more, he added, interrupting Julien's thanks, for the extraordinary offer which you made me at Besançon. If, instead of having five hundred and twenty francs, I had had nothing, you would have saved me. The abbé's voice had lost its tone of cruelty. 
Julien was ashamed to feel tears in his eyes. He was desperately anxious to throw himself into his friend's arms. He could not help saying to him in the most manly manner he could assume, I was hated by my father from the cradle. It was one of my great misfortunes, but I shall no longer complain of my luck. I have found another father in you, monsieur. That is good, that is good, said the embarrassed abbe, then suddenly remembering quite appropriately a seminary platitude. You must never say luck, my child, always say providence. The fiacre stopped. The coachman lifted up the bronze knocker of an immense door. It was the Hôtel de la Mole, and to prevent the passers-by having any doubt on the subject, these words could be read in black marble over the door. This affectation displeased Julien. They are so frightened of the Jacobins. They see a Robespierre and his tumbrel behind every head. Their panic is often gloriously grotesque, and they advertise their house like this so that in the event of a rising the rabble can recognize it and loot it. He communicated his thoughts to the Abbe Pirard. Yes, poor child, you will soon be my curate. What a dreadful idea you have got into your head. Nothing could be simpler, said Julien. The gravity of the porter, and above all the cleanness of the court, struck him with admiration. It was fine sunshine. What magnificent architecture, he said to his friend. The hotel in question was one of those buildings of the Faubourg Saint-Germain, with a flat façade, built about the time of Voltaire's death. At no other period had fashion and beauty been so far from one another. End of section 1 Reading by Malone